The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. The following program contains topics particular to the LGBTQ community. Some discussions may contain mature themes. As such, listener discretion is advised. This is Pride Connection, sponsored by BlindLGBTPride.org, otherwise known as BPI, every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. on ACB Media One, and shortly after on all your major podcast catchers. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Pride Connection. I am one of your hosts, Anthony Corona. I'm here as always with Gabriel Lopez-Cafati, president of BPI. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Anthony. Hey, everyone. Welcome again to Pride Connection. We are very delighted to have a part two of a conversation that we had a a little over a year ago with West Virginia representative Rosemary Ketchum. Uh, We have been running the previous episode that we did with Rosemary over the last week, and you can find it in podcast form right at the top of Pride Connections podcast page at acbmedia.org slash podcasts. Just click on Pride Connection. Um, It was such a great conversation, and it was so relevant then. And I think a follow-up conversation is going to be completely relevant because BPI has been taking some strong advocacy leads in some of the bills around the country, such as, oh God, I cringe because I'm actually sitting in Miami as I say this, um, don't say gay here in Florida. And it's basically, I guess you could call it companion in Ohio. Um, the person who wrote our outstanding letter of advocacy that went to every single representative here in the state of Florida and actually got noticed, and portions of it were read on the floor when they were debating, um, is Melody Holloway. So, Melody, welcome to Pride Connection. Well, welcome back to Pride Connection. Um, we will be talking with you, and you'll have an opportunity to ask a couple of questions to Rosemary in a few minutes. Gabriel, did you have a president's message, or did you want to jump right into the conversation? Well, I'm going to just say a quick couple of words because it's an honor for BPI to have Rosemary once again with us. Um, as you may remember uh, from our first conversation with her, Rosemary um, is uh, the first transgender elected official, and um, she is councilwoman of West Virginia. And, really? uh Yes. Well, well, West Virginia. Thank you. <laughs> and we we talked about everything uh, last time, all LGBTQ topics. Uh, we talked about language. It was just an, an enlightening conversation and just so, so enjoyable. So without further ado, welcome, Rosemary. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me back. I, I can't believe it's been 
over a year since our last conversation. So um, Anthony and Gabriel and Melody, I'm so excited to be here. So we spoke a lot about language in our last conversation, and I think that might be a good place to pick up the thread um, now. So with all of the legislation that's being introduced around the country and you know, we hear pundits and, and we hear brave high school students that are, you know, presenting things about Stonewall in their classrooms and things. How is the language that's out there affecting our, our community and more, most importantly, our young community, those that are coming up now? Mm. I, I think for LGBTQ folks in particular, language is in our journeys and our transitions, the most important thing that we can use to describe our own lived experiences, to talk to our families and to, um, you know, kind of illustrate what we are uh, going through and, and who we are as people. Uh, But language is also a tool and it obviously is being used as a weapon in so many ways uh, uh, across the Mm -hmm. country to really um, legislate LGBTQ folks uh, out of law, out of protection, out of the books, out of history, Um, you know, and it it is not hyperbolic to say that in previous uh, periods of world history, when we would uh, attempt to ban language, uh, we uh, were on the wrong side of history almost every single time, if not every single time, not just here in the United States, but I think of think of Germany. I think of so many of mm. instances where we have said a certain subgroup, a certain demographic of people are invalid in the way that people in power and influence uh, can codify that is by banning language. And so I, I know a lot of folks uh, who might be allies of LGBTQ people uh, obviously are against the don't say gay bill, but might not understand absolutely how insidious it actually is. Um, And as you mentioned, there are sister bills across the country, one in Ohio. Uh, We have yet to have one introduced here in West Virginia, but I can only imagine, uh, you know, conservatives are really good at copy and pasting legislation, (laughs) you know, kind of replicating uh, the dangerous uh, behavior of their colleagues across the nation. So language is so key. Um, And as I said, it's a tool and a weapon. And unfortunately, it's being wielded against some of our most vulnerable folks. You know, you were so open and honest with us about your journey. Um, And we did speak about how important language was in when you finally had language for it, you finally had a destination, or at least you could see a path. Um, Feel free to say this is not my valley hook. But I was wondering if you could take yourself back to the 12 year old, the 15 year old, the 16 year old version of yourself. And you, you know, be presented with the information that these bills are, are, are putting forward. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that, how that would have informed your choices and how it would have made you feel as the Rosemary coming into the world? Mm. So it's a great question. I'm 28 years old, uh, which is not old. I tell myself every day, but old God enough. Bless. <laughs> <laughs> but old enough to see the evolution of our culture and our society. And obviously, folks who are, um, you know, older than me have been able to see so much. But when I was growing up in the late 90s and early 2000s, we did not have language readily available for rural queer folks. 
like myself, the only kind of access to mainstream LGBTQ media or information my parents had or or I had was uh, shows like Will and Grace or Queer as Folk. And um, while these were really groundbreaking uh, pieces of television when they came out, um, they're really dated today. And they, uh, I think, uh, again, were really important for their time. And I remember being a kid and, and knowing that I was different than my younger brothers and the other folks that I uh, you know, grew up with, but I didn't have language for it. The only phrase that I knew, the only term that I knew was the word gay. And that was something that uh, the straight community in particular used as an umbrella term for anything LGBTQ, anything queer, anything less than straight was gay. And so uh, that's the term that I applied uh, as a kid. As I remember being like 10 years old and being like, that must be what this is. But knowing that never felt right because the characters that were gay on television and in media, I didn't relate to them in, in the full kind of context of their lives um, because uh, I knew that that while I you know, was born a boy, I didn't want to, I didn't want to continue being a boy. <laughs> and, that, and that is yeah. what, um, that was not illustrated in, uh, in television and media and print, at least for me, I did not have access to that when I was a kid. So it took years before uh, my parents uh, found a therapist um, in our town of like 10,000 folks. We found a therapist who was willing to help us kind of navigate this situation. And he finally gave my parents and myself the word transgender. And this is the power of words. This is the power of language. Because until then, I had no idea, you know, uh, who I was or what I was feeling. I couldn't really place it. I knew how I felt. I knew, I, uh, but I couldn't describe it. And it wasn't until that moment when my therapist described that, you know, this is who transgender people are and this is their experiences. and. Um, as many trans folks who may be listening, you know, we don't really use this phrasing anymore, but when I was in therapy, my therapist said that trans people feel like they're stuck in the wrong body. Like they're a woman stuck in a, a, a boy's body. And that was great for me because it's exactly how I felt. Um, but it was terrifying for my parents because not because they necessarily felt ashamed or embarrassed, but because they could see gay people living their lives on television. Um, and in, even in our small town, they did not see trans people living their lives um, healthily and successfully. Um, the only depictions of trans people were often in sex work or as victims of, yeah. of serious and heinous crimes or as drag queens or cross-dressers, the kind of like misunderstanding of trans identity. And so it wasn't until we had the language and the word, um, it wasn't until then that we were actually able to dig in to what that, what my future could look like um, and how I could live openly and honestly as a person. And so to know that today we're trying to, for young people, turn back the clock and eliminate their ability to learn and grow and use new language is perhaps the most un-American thing I've ever heard of. So I want a powerful, a a powerful statement, Rosemary, of and a powerful example of how the language can make or break a person. And like you said, not allowing the language with which we identify the language that we can relate to as we grow up, how that can just impede our full development as a human and 
as an American with liberty, justice, and happiness, which are constitutionally guaranteed for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Holding the mantle. You just spoke about, you know, seeing Will and Grace and, and Queer Spoken. And she was, I, I'm a little older, but to a certain <laughs> extent, I can completely relate. Like their life didn't look like my life. It didn't feel like my life. You're one of just a few carrying this mantle, being this positive representation that a lot of young trans folks are going to be looking at. They're going to be saying your name. So I'm sure that comes with, you know, with a lot of pride, but it also comes with a lot of responsibility. Now responsibility, that, yeah. you know, you've been in the spotlight more than, than you had been before political life. Now that you've been in the spotlight for a while, what does that responsibility feel like? And please do talk about the pride part of it too. I feel lots of pride and gratitude for the opportunity that I've been given to represent my community um, as a trans person, as a first-generation college student, as somebody who grew up in poverty, as you know, as a person who really cares deeply about the broad kind of swath of issues that we're experiencing as a community. Um, some that involve social justice issues, and many that have nothing to do with LGBTQ folks, and so. For me, I think what I'm most proud of is that I'm able to lead as a trans person, but not only as a trans person to the folks that I serve. They don't even talk about it. They couldn't care less. They they hope that we get to pave their streets and fill their potholes. That to me is is real progress. But I think it, on, a, on a larger level, particularly across the state of West Virginia, you know, we are a state that struggles with perception. Um, we're a rural state. We're a state that um, is n- has a now super majority of uh, Republicans. Um, and we do have some thoughtful Republicans who do support LGBTQ rights. But by and large, there are uh, very few representations of LGBTQ lived experience across the state. I think we, we have one state legislator uh, who is gay and we have a person running for the state Senate who's a former delegate um, that was out and that's it. Uh, we have uh, various city council members across the state who are LGBTQ, which is amazing. But we have so far to go across the country. And I think what it means to elect LGBTQ folks beyond just pure representation is that when our rights are on the table, we have a seat at that table and we get to be the first barrier um, or at least the, the first frontier yeah. to have those conversations. And, the, and honestly, when trans folks and LGBTQ folks are, are in office, we change the conversation um, and we get to make people very uncomfortable when they like to, when they attempt to legislate us out of, <laughs> out of law. We also are examples of the progress that is continuing to be made and something that I strive to do when I speak to, you know, classrooms and at college graduations or, uh, you know, other uh, opportunities when I get to speak to young folks, I tell people you should run for office. Most folks say, I'm not that person. I'm not a politician. There's no way I could do it. Let me tell you, the people who are doing it have no idea what they're doing. And they're making really (laughs) bad choices uh, that you would be able to mitigate and circumvent if you were an elected official. Um, It is an honor and a privilege to do this work, but it does feel lonely when so many of your allies decide not to kind of take on that, you know, that extra labor of running for office. And it's not for everybody. I mean, it is, it it is a lot of work, but I don't think we get to the world we want to see unless we make that sacrifice and and we, we run for office together. Talk to that 12, 13-year-old trans person who is seeing the world the way it is right now and thinking to themselves, I can't do this. 
a piece of advice that I would give folks, I would say, first and foremost, your feelings are valid. It is valid to be afraid and to be angry and to be frustrated. Those are, are good things to feel because it means you're paying attention and that you care. I, I remember being angry early on about what it meant to be transgender in the context of my political environment and realizing that I could harness that anger and do something good with it. And for me, that was running for office. That was, you know, being a community organizer. Uh, but for other young trans folks, realize that there's a privilege in being transgender in being able to um, have conversations that other folks may never have in their entire lives. Um, I, I understand for some folks being LGBTQ and representing a whole community feels like a burden and it surely can be, but I decide that it's a privilege and that I get to have conversations and engage with people who uh, really need and require that kind of, those kind of conversations and that kind of vulnerability. So if I'm talking to 12, 13, 14 year old trans kids, I'd say first and foremost, be proud of who you are because ultimately you, ha- you are your own best friend and you will get yourself through this journey. And lastly, I would say, find what you love and really embrace that. And, and whether that's, you know, uh, elected office or community organizing, it probably isn't. Um, and that's okay too. Um, but really begin to uh, build a comprehensive identity for yourself because you will be pigeonholed as an, as an LGBTQ person. And folks will make you very one-dimensional. And so I would urge folks to really get to know themselves, develop self-awareness. Trans people are some of the most self-aware people you'll ever meet. So (laughs) that's often easy for (laughs) us. Um, But I think feel confident that the world is changing. And the reason that the opposition is so loud is because they're losing. And they don't feel comfortable and they don't feel like they have the leverage Mm -hmm. of power any longer. So it might feel rough right now, but it truly is getting better. Amen. That's a very, very, not only positive, but a very clear analysis of where we are with the fear of the opposition. Since you mentioned it, as you started your political career and uh, you decided to put your name out there for an elected official seat the the lgbtq portion of your persona because like you said we are much more than just lgbtq we can be lgbtq rural african-american hispanic asian i mean so many other things how do you feel the lgbtq part played for you was it mostly to your advantage in your political platform or were you maybe attacked because of being part of the LGBTQ community we i had a really incredible campaign team when we ran for office in 2020 communications director a treasurer uh, some volunteers and we created a kind of power map and a cost benefit analysis of what it would look like to run and we put on this, on like a, a dry erase board, we, we labeled all of the allies that we thought we would have, and then all of the potential opposition that we would have. And of all the things that people could point out about me, maybe they didn't like that I'm not from Wheeling. Maybe they thought that I was too young, that being transgender was going to be a problem. Of all those things, my gender identity was a number one concern for our campaign. We thought, If anything's going to derail this, it might be that people are uncomfortable with a trans person running. And it wasn't until I started door knocking and holding town halls that I realized and understood 
and found out that not a single person mentioned my gender identity as a, as a concern or a reason that they might not vote for me. Interestingly enough, my age was a, an obstacle that I needed to overcome. I was mm-hmm. 26 and a half, 27 when I ran, or 25 uh, or 26 when I ran. And many of the folks in my community are older and they were like, oh, interesting. Do you feel like you can do this job? Are you prepared enough for it? You don't, do you have the lived experience to uh, do this work? And that was not something that we really prepared for. I'm sure behind the scenes, there were some folks who used my gender identity as a club against my credibility. But by and large, it was something that people did not mention. And even in the media, it wasn't until I was elected that the media made mention of my gender identity, but local media in particular. And so for me, that's really, I think, a recognition or an indication of progress. 10 years ago, it would have been really difficult perhaps to run as a trans person in a really Mm -hmm. red rural community because it just had not been seen before. But because we've elected trans folks across the country um, and LGBTQ folks just more broadly, it was much easier. And I I do need to say that I have white privilege. Uh, If I was a a Black trans person running, it it would look a lot different. I'm quote unquote passable to some extent. And so Mm -hmm. that uh, provides me a a little bit of privilege there. So I don't want to you know, say that it would be easy for anybody. But particularly for me, I find that small communities don't get give enough credit, particularly rural communities, for their ability to think critically and to look past things like your gender identity. Well, thank you for, for that answer. It's definitely a, a glimpse of what a political career looks like when you are practically different than, than, than the options that have been traditionally presented out there for us to elect. We applaud you for for going ahead and and doing it. I want you to talk to not not even those legislators who are supporting all these bills, but just to play devil's advocate, I think it, it merits just mentioning for our listeners that people who are supporting these don't say gay bills all across the country are people, like you said earlier, Rosemary, that are afraid And some of them have somehow gotten this belief that the LGBTQ plus community is, quote unquote, recruiting children or indoctrinating children. And I want you to go back to, like Anthony said, to that 12, 13 year old Rosemary trying to find your identity and trying to find who you really are and having heard nothing about transgender, having heard nothing about any specific name or word or category or anything like you said everything everything that was not straight was gay so you you basically lived practically in a world of don't say gay without legislation and you still found your identity and you made it through so I just would like you to talk to legislators and people who support these legislations from your own experience yeah, it's fascinating, this idea of recruitment uh, because of the gay <laughs> agenda. Um, I wish we had regular meetings uh, as LGBTQ. Right. We could like, <laughs> we were powerful enough to have our own full agenda. Um, I know. <laughs> it's fascinating because the folks who are supporting Don't Say Gay Bills and talk about recruitment, they're, all, they're actually saying the quiet part out loud that when you give human beings, the language to describe their lived experience, they connect with it and that they adopt it. And so it isn't that 
I'm walking around and talking with young adults and trying to convince them to be LGBTQ. It is that they are finding language and seeing representation and saying, that is who I am. That is how I feel. And why on earth would we want to limit self-expression? I mean, some of the worst governments in the world do exactly that. They limit a free press, they limit self-expression, and they are terrible places to live. It is fascinating that, that legislators do understand what they're doing and they're not ignorant. They're just inherently bigoted. And, and ultimately they will be very unsuccessful. While these are, I, I'm very sad and, and disheartened by these bills, I don't take them very seriously because the, the world is changing so quickly and so uh, dramatically and people are more thoughtful than they've ever been around LGBTQ issues that these would just will not stand constitutionally or in the curriculums that uh, exist across the country. This is kind of a last ditch effort on the part of bigoted anti-LGBTQ folks to figure out how to um, leverage their own bigotry against the most vulnerable folks, which is our children. Uh, While it is disheartening and we should be fighting as hard as we can against them, I think big picture and it doesn't scare me because we are far more powerful than we even give ourselves credit for uh, at the end of the day. They're scared. They're fearful. They see that the power structure at some point is going to crumble under their feet. And so these are last ditch. I love the way you put that. These are last ditch efforts to rile up as much fear. You know, you said something about it not being an issue in your community for the most part during your campaign. And then it was celebrated in the media after you won. But that speaks a lot that it really wasn't an issue while you were door knocking. It wasn't an issue while you were making your way through the community and introducing yourself. And the urban queer population has a thought process about rural. And it's not necessarily true from that perspective either. And I think that's something that we need to shine a light on, too. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Melody wrote a beautiful letter representing BPI's position, and it went to every legislator in the state of Florida. We got a lot of good feedback. So we thought it would be... We're actually going to share it with you if Melody's okay with with Rosemary. Okay, yeah, I'll send it to to Rosemary via email. So we thought it would be apropos if Melody got the opportunity to ask you a couple questions as well. Love it. Thank you for taking the time for us today, Rosemary. And last night it was unexpected, but you know, you, you're busy and you're, you're obviously wanted and well-loved and well-received by more than the state you live in now. And I, I'm 36 years, seven months and five days, and I have a ton of respect <laughs> for you. And I was born with no vision and a whole host of extra disabilities and conditions and I'm lesbian third and through. I was wondering if you truly believe that your own family's backing and your, the time that you came out, you know, um, 90s and early 2000s would be a bit less taboo, I would think, than the mid to late 80s and early 90s. And also the fact that you were homeschooled. Do you think that helped you as opposed to having to handle not only flack from other students and what they're hearing from their previous generations, but from teachers and extracurricular coaches and things? Absolutely. So I was homeschooled. Uh, I attended public school until around fourth grade when I experienced an incident in the boys' bathroom where I was kind of cornered by my fellow classmates. It was it was a moment I remember, but nothing incredibly traumatic. But a fellow classmate of mine reported it to a teacher 
And it got to a principal and finally uh, my parents learned about it. And it was a moment, I think my parents who are kind of just like blue collar folks, they're not college educated. They don't have this uh, broad uh, education or experience with sociology and LGBTQ dynamics in the school systems, but they were smart enough to know that this would likely not be the first incident that I experienced as a young queer kid. And so they gave me the opportunity and the option to choose between continuing public school and, and, and maybe experiencing similar issues or entering homeschooling. And while homeschool is not for everybody, I completely understand. It was such an incredible opportunity for me <laughs> to learn about my own gender identity and uh, really grow as a person in the context of my family versus the context of my school system, which is a blessing and a curse to some extent. And I was able to develop my own sense of self-worth and self-efficacy without, you know, kind of battling um, these like social comparisons you make as a kid um, in public school. I think it for, for personally, it really did improve my sense of well-being. Uh, you know, some of the things that it didn't help with was kind of like these you know, social comparisons around my intellect and, you know, making friends, you know, it was a little more difficult uh, until I went to college. Uh, and those are just some of the uh, casualties that happen during, uh, you know, homeschool situations. But personally, I would recommend it for many, you know, queer folks, you know, if your family structure really warrants the ability to homeschool. It was it was an incredible experience for me. What was your college experience like? I mean, as far as coming out, were you open? Were you, did you, was it different for you going? Was it a culture shock being homeschooled? Yeah. So I grew up in East Liverpool, Ohio and moved to Wheeling uh, while I was in high school. I was uh, 16 or 17 when I moved uh, here and nobody knew who I was. I, I, I had no friends or no real connections, but a neighbor of mine who I was helping with some yard work as a teenager, you know, kind of befriended me and said, you know, what are your plans after graduation? And I, I come from a family that went to work after high school. We didn't go to college. That just wasn't part of our blue collar, you know, family. So I said, I think I'm just going to get a job and see what happens. And this neighbor of mine, we incredibly friendly was like, you will not just get a job and see what happens. <laughs> you have to go to college. And this was 2000 and uh, 12, maybe 2013. And we were coming right off the cusp of a financial crisis, the recession of 2008, 2009. And if you think back to that time, student loan debt was a number one concern uh, for everybody, this bubble, the student loan bubble that existed. And I just had it in my brain that college was inaccessible, unaffordable, and maybe even financially dangerous and irresponsible. So it had just been written off um, as an experience for me. This friend of mine held, literally held my hand and walked me into our local community college where I signed up for financial aid and went for free based on my income. And it was really one of the first experiences that I had in a quote unquote public school system as a college student. And I remember being terrified and feeling all kinds of you know fears and anxieties about what it would look like to make friends and be ingratiated into this community and whether people would accept me or not as a trans person. I had already, you know, completed my transition at that point. And also as a first generation college student, I wonder if folks who may be listening can relate. You have these very strange misconceptions of what college looks like, you know, from yes. movies and television, you just assume it's this massive experience and everybody's drinking and partying and 
all of these things. And maybe, I mean, that does happen some places, but it was, it was not the community college experience that I was, uh, <laughs> I was in, which I was grateful for because it, it, it felt much more accessible and just more grounded than I, I thought it would be. So I was able to make friends really quickly. Uh, I joined the board of our college. Um, through Student Government Association, which was really my first taste of leadership. I, I was you know, given the opportunity to vote on millions of dollars worth of infrastructure and curriculum projects. And when, when I had a, that seat at the table, I really enjoyed it. And I felt that sense of honor and weight of being in leadership. But I also realized how important it was to speak for vulnerable folks like students in that capacity. So I I really found myself in college. And I know that's a cliched thing to say, but as a trans person who really did not have the ability to engage with folks in a real way as a, you know, in my gender identity, college was a formative and life-changing experience for me. Has there been any further, um, well, I shouldn't say further, any legislation as far as moving forth on insurance companies covering the transition process as far as hormone treatments and reassignment and even other aspects of gender affirming health care. It's been an issue. It's a huge issue. You know, LGBTQ folks, particularly trans people, uh, when we talk to them and we survey folks about, you know, their greatest concerns, healthcare is a number one concern almost across the board. And not just trans-specific healthcare, but healthcare more broadly. There's this uh, concept called the broken arm theory um, that exists in the trans community and the healthcare community that you know, a physician, uh, kind of just a general practitioner, will treat an LGBTQ person, a trans person, they will treat them differently than they will one of their other patients. And, and not in the sense that they're a unique person, but they will apply or associate just human problems like a broken arm to their gender identity in some strange way, as if trans people break their arms any different than another person. And so there's this level of disparity in healthcare for trans people across the board, no matter the service. And I think part of that, obviously, is sociological, just the way that we see trans people represented and how we associate them. But it's also... I think part of the practical application of healthcare and how we have yet to really build in and codify the trans experience and how we just treat human beings, that's changing. Um, uh, and, And we're in a better place than we've ever been, but we have so much further to go. I recently spoke with medical providers at our local hospital, Wheeling Hospital, and I I kind of told my story and and uh my own healthcare story, and I gave them some examples of of ways that they could. Uh, be more thoughtful and actually change policies and intake forms, which is a huge problem in many ways. I think healthcare providers are really interested in learning and growing, but if it's actually if it's not in their textbooks and it's not in their curriculum when they are you know becoming medical professionals, it's much more difficult to treat uh, LGBTQ folks when you're serving your community. Uh, but to talk about insurance for a moment. Obviously, insurance is a racket, and no matter who you are, it is—it's terrible, yeah. it's a terrible experience. And I can't believe it's even legal to do this to people <laughs> to levy such wild insurance yeah. premiums and deductibles. Uh, but for LGBTQ folks, obviously, it's that that much more difficult in regards to HRT, in regards to 
other, uh, you know, transition related surgeries, even facial feminization surgeries and other cosmetic surgeries that are deemed cosmetic by the wider world, but actually um, are uh, really important components of many trans folks gender identity uh, process. So, you know, ideally, we would see programs like Medicare and Medicaid uh, take on uh, comprehensive LGBTQ and trans um, insurance uh, access. They haven't even done that for dental. So I, I don't yeah. know how, you know, <laughs> what the future looks like for trans inclusive healthcare in, in kind of government run, run pro- programs. But we do have some, particularly here in the Ohio Valley, we have organizations like the Central Outreach Wellness Center that's based out of Washington, Pennsylvania, that serves a, the, the many regional states, they do accept Medicaid and they can pay for services like hormone replacement therapy and certain um, cosmetic surgeries and other trans-related services through Medicaid um, because they're just geniuses and they're able to do this work or through private donors. Lastly, I'll say that there are some, and I'm actually in currently now in a search for new insurance. So I'm really in the thick of it. And some organizations like Aetna do provide some level of trans inclusive healthcare, but it's nowhere where we, it's no, it's, we are not at the place we need to be to fully serve our, our folks. Melody, this is a fascinating question because it involves politics. It involves government. It involves service providers. And obviously it involves uh, recipients and customers of these services. So I think that's in part why it takes so much work and it's so cumbersome to actually change these laws because you need everybody at the table. I'm curious if you would give us a little bit of your views slash opinion on the trans community in the broader spectrum of the LGBTQ community. We hear a lot trans folks don't feel enfolded into the community in the way that, you know, other representations, um, maybe, you know, asexuality or bisexuality the trans community doesn't necessarily have the same enfolding. So what thoughts do you have on that? Our community is not a monolith. And I think that's something we understand as just as queer people, we understand that each of us is very different and, you know, we're incredibly intersectional as a community. So you cannot, when you've met one queer person, you've met one queer person. (laughs) There's no way to apply any kind of like broad understanding to everybody. But that isn't necessarily the case for our straight communities and allies. They see the LGBT community as kind of one monolithic rainbow and that we're all just so happy and excited and celebrating and we love each other and every, and then we're one big happy family, which I think in many ways is true. But there are obviously areas for growth and there are spaces where LGBTQ folks disagree, whether that's politically, socially, culturally and that we're not on the same page. And I think right now, and and historically, I think trans people have been that white elephant in the kind of in queer spaces. Like, how do we talk about trans identity? How do we ingratiate trans people into our communities? Obviously, trans people have existed forever. And we've been in all kinds of spaces. And many trans people have started their journeys as gay or bi folks or continue to be, you know, uh, identify as gay or bi. And so I think there's so much that we can do. And personally, I have not necessarily felt, you know, being ostracized or kind of outcast by the broader LGBT community. I will say 
that I've had to do a lot of teaching, uh, particularly yeah. with gay men who are like, I just don't get it. Like, what does this mean? And and to mostly older gay men who are like, I thought I knew what a drag queen was, but I guess I don't. And I'm like, it, no, honey, you do not. <laughs> it is very different. <laughs> I really choose to lead those conversations with grace and curiosity and humility. And I, I don't try to punish curiosity. And when somebody asks a dumb question or uses kind of uh, old language or the wrong pronoun, I don't flip out. I just course correct and, and try to be thoughtful about it because LGBTQ folks have been through so much trauma and growth. And I think all of us are trying to teach the world um, <laughs> at every moment. And we didn't sign up for that. I, I want to be thoughtful <laughs> for all of our own kind of journeys. But we do, I think, have some growth to do. And we're learning every single day as we, you know, as more folks begin to identify themselves in different ways. I think one of the hurdles that a lot of LGBTQ folks are experiencing is the they, them pronoun. Even, you know, really incredible, thoughtful queer folks are like, oh no, like, what do I, I've only ever spoken to folks in the context of he, him, she, her. So how do I navigate that conversation? I guess my advice is to just lead with grace and realize that 99% of folks, they want to get it right. They really do. Whether they're queer, straight, allies, whomever, they don't want to be harmful or hateful. And they sometimes just need our help to get there. It's funny. We have the same conversation in the blind and low vision community, but it's obviously with our issues. Folks want to help. They, they, they want to understand and we're constantly educating every day. And so imagine the intersectionality of, of trying to educate on from both the blindness perspective and the LGBTQ perspective, yeah. but it, it rises a lot of frustration. You know, one of the things the American Council of the Blind did for the pandemic was create this community call system structure. And we have, you know, over 90 calls per week. Um, and one of the biggest things that we heard over and over and over again was, I am so tired of having to teach someone how to, you know, and then it's you know, like, I would be on a call and I'd be like, oh, girl, please, you have no idea. Not only do I got to <laughs> teach them, you know, how to help me cross the street if they so want to. But, you know, I also have to teach them about being gay and, and, you know, and that I'm not a pedophile and so on and right. so forth. And, and that there are some of us who are both blind and gay because people think that it's like you were saying earlier, Rosemary, that they think, you know, we get pigeonholed in, in, in one category and that's it. We become this unilateral four six asexual yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah and then and then no one thinks of, of a blind person so they even get confused what do you mean you're blind and gay and i always love to bring that up that is the genesis of the existence of our organization blind lgbt pride international which which represents the intersectionality of of all the lgbtq uh with blind and visually impaired. It's all about the intersectionality and it's all about educating people. I know I loved how you said it, Rosemary. I, I agree with you. We did not sign up for that. But in a <laughs> in in a certain way, I guess sometimes it's not that we're we're you're obligated. Whether you're signed up or not. You're yeah, we kind of get drafted in. I've kind of flirted with both sides of that dilemma throughout my life because one of my favorite campaigns was I even have a t-shirt that says hashtag ask the gays so <laughs> i know that gays is very is not inclusive but i identify yeah. with it because i do identify as gay so basically the premise behind that is ask me why do you think that you have all the answers or the absolute truth mm -hmm. if you do not live if you do not have my life experience if you did not grow up being a gay boy not knowing 
what was happening or if, having learned that things that I was feeling had been taught to me mm-hmm. as being wrong. As I grew up, I grew up thinking that I am wrong. There's something wrong with me. Rosemary, you live in such positivity and you were prophetizing to us that it is getting better and the pendulum has to swing both ways. And sometimes it has to crack a wall on one side to be able to free the other side. And I believe in that wholeheartedly. A piece of good news that we got recently is that the Social Security Administration, followed by the IRS, is now going to make space within all of their communications for you to be able to choose male, female, or another category. And they, I, I just saw another article saying that they're kind of fighting back and forth on whether it's going to be other or self-identification. So they haven't figured out what the third box is going to be, but I look at that as step one. I look at that as, okay, right there, you know, that's the open door. Now we can figure out how to really push the conversation forward. What are your thoughts on that? Ultimately, success in my eyes is institutionalizing our lived experience. Exactly that. Being able to change laws and change policies. One of my favorite quotes, and I I think it might be from former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said, We don't change hearts and minds. We change law and policy. And I actually could not agree with that more. I think, yes, we we go person to person and we hope to really engage and inspire and to change people's minds or at least give them a positive example of what it looks like to be LGBTQ. But there are billions of people (laughs) who need that. And I think one of the quickest ways to really develop habits and change minds is by changing our laws and our policies. And by just seeing, you know, they, them, or the word transgender on an intake form as a straight person, as a cisgender person is, is powerful and fascinating because not only um, are they seeing it on television and they're able to say, well, maybe trans people exist, but not in my town. They get to see mm. it on paper and they get to know that the person sitting next to them, that the person who has the appointment right before them could have checked the box, transgender, LGBTQ, they, them. And so that visibility is quiet. It is not loud, but I think is some of the most important and powerful institutional change that we can see. And I, I have a, my own personal DMV story where the DMV wouldn't take my photo because they thought that I was catfishing them as a trans person. And I was like, oh my goodness, this, and this was just a couple of years ago. Uh, and, and now they have a whole process and they have, I mean, they have grown so much. And so when people get frustrated, understandably by the pace of progress, I I think just a little history lesson really shows you how far we've come uh, so much so that we're talking about the IRS changing their forms to include LGBTQ folks. I think that's just so powerful and such a, such a bright light. And we know that if they pass it, they don't change laws very often at <laughs> the IRS. So it's not going yeah. to revoke it anytime soon. Thank goodness. So, so that's really good and powerful progress. What is those that came before us? Blame Pride as, as an organization is very proactive in making sure that the younger generations understand who came before us. Things like the Stonewall Foundation and the Preservation Society is doing amazing work to make sure that our history that was buried for so long, you know, and other groups are talking about it too. You know, we don't learn in schools as much as we should. And, and you can't teach every single thing to every single student. We, I do get that. You know, now that we're reclaiming our history, how much of that informed who you are and how much does it mean to you going forward? 
I remember my high school and elementary education and the only LGBTQ person I can remember being even mentioned was Harvey Milk. I remember kind of being startled that I, I was even learning about Harvey Milk and, and started to dig in and do my own research and figure out who this was. And I remember watching the Sean Penn movie with my mom as a teenager and being like, this is my history. And I didn't even know it existed. And so for young kind of Gen Z uh, queer folks who don't know their history well, it's very easy to take for granted where we are and to not, not even think about politics. You know, something I say often is that as queer people, as LGBTQ people, we don't choose to get involved in politics or not. We are inherently politicized yeah. by our government and by our politicians and by our communities. So we can, we can choose to ignore it. But we are, we are being politicized every single day. And to not pay attention and to not learn about your history, I mean, I think is inappropriate. And so for me, learning about Harvey Milk, learning about the HIV and AIDS crisis of the 1980s and how the United States government was borderline complicit in the deaths of so many LGBTQ folks and so, you know, so many gay men and women and trans folks who could not access healthcare and could not and was not acknowledged by their government. I mean, that was not that long ago. That is within a lifetime within our lifetime uh, to know that we have grown from that. And now we talk about PrEP and now we talk about HIV status as, as part of conversations around overall health is I think monumental change. And now we're celebrating incredible LGBTQ folks in history. You know, we're thinking about um, Marsha P. Johnson and the work that she did to really um, propel the civil rights movement for uh, LGBTQ folks. Modern folks, uh, you know, like Laverne Cox, who, you know, is representing us in media, and then other people who uh, I think in all swaths of our kind of zeitgeist are representing trans folks. I was just in DC a couple of days ago with the Victory Fund, which is just a nat- national organization that helps LGBTQ candidates and trans people find each other. It was a room of like white cis gay men and they're a hoot. But, um, <laughs> but we found there were like maybe four or five trans women in that room. And it was like a magnet. We all found each other and we were chatting about our experiences. And one is a, I believe, a Biden appointed defense uh, secretary assistant. And then the other person is running for office. And I had a moment where I thought, oh my gosh, this is the future. I'm standing in it right now. And so I just hope that other folks who do feel disheartened and frustrated are either able to hear that or experience that themselves. God, thank you for sharing that with us. That beautiful note. Uh, I, I love how you said we, we are standing in the future right now. Have you noticed as people with disabilities, as we were speaking of before, just that categorical divide of not being thought of that we would even have a relationship, let alone be part of the LGBTQ community. And now that fine line that you were speaking of between people that are just uneducated, that don't know and that don't understand that want to, and the people that are just inherently bigoted and won't and will remain judgmental. Has anything right now with the all the don't say gay related bills and, and the hits that we've been taking, have more people stepped forward, more of your constituents? And even more personal acquaintances and friends and family wanting to know, and have they been asking to help, or has there been a pretty good uptick in backlash? There has been an incredible backlash to the bills, uh, to the Don't Say Gay bill, and some other you know terrible pieces of legislation. And that is why I almost think these pieces of legislation are valuable because they highlight the um, they define the disparity in thought and in messaging. I mean, people don't support these things. By and large, like 
most Americans, when you poll them, they support LGBTQ rights. They have uh, friends and family in the community. Uh, And so when they see a bill like this, it, it does make sense to them. And so as an LGBTQ legislator, I get all kinds of um, incredible correspondence from folks who's, who ask me, how can I help? Who can I write to? You know, whose phone call, whose phone do I need to call to, you know, to make a difference? And that just inspires me so much because, you know, our allies are coming to bat and they, they haven't always. And I think part of that is that uh, allies in the straight and cis communities have never f- known exactly how to engage or how to help. Yeah. I think they're feeling right now a lot of confidence and, and they're irate and they're irreverent and they're going for it. And, and we love that. So um, I do think that when a bill like this is proposed and I, and I am confident and, and I, and I hope I'm wrong that it might be proposed here in this, in the state of West Virginia, when those are proposed um, I think it really brings out the best people um, in our states and on our cities to say like, this is not who we are as a people, as a state, as a community. So much so that even um, here in Wheeling at our next city council meeting in a couple of days, we will be proposing a conversion therapy ban. I mean, and, and we're just, Amen. yeah, we are just one of a handful mm. of communities that have, have taken this on, but it's not as if we're made of like my full city council. We're not all queer folks. I'm the only one that I know of. And so <laughs> that is the power of an ally, right? That my mayor and my vice mayor and the other folks who represent our community are saying that they the support they support LGBTQ folks not just because it's a cool thing to do and it you know it wins them points in an election but because they're serving with a queer person because they know these folks and that they believe inherently in the value of LGBTQ people and when small towns like our own make that stand and take that risk quote unquote I think that state legislatures and politicians like Ron DeSantis really have nothing to say. Mm-hmm. I love it. Rosemary, everything, every conversation with you is, is just pure gold. We get so much, we grow whenever we connect with yes. you. Um, no, what really resonated with me, and I would like if you could just, you know, kind of close us up with a message to those of us who are in the fence. When you talked about us already being politicized by mainstream, because we are. Uh, And then you talked about options. And then you said you choose to ignore, you choose to speak up. But then there's another option, the option that you took. For those of us who are probably on the fence about serving and going to a more visible political platform, what can you tell us? This one's speaking right now. (laughs) To pull us over to that side of the fence. (laughs) I love it. Oh, my God. I can't imagine who we're talking about right now. I think first and foremost, it was the best decision I ever made to run for office. Uh, but I also, I, I, I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. I mean, not everyone um, will enjoy it. You know, I think you have to, I, I, you have to love the work and um, you have to really care about your community and, and, and seeing these improvements. I'm a people person. And if I, if I think I was, I think if I was any more an introvert, I would hate my life. So <laughs> because you know, people stop you on the street and they send you emails and they, they really count on you to do that work. Um, but if you feel compelled to serve in any capacity, I think public service, you know, in the capacity of running for office is so inherently valuable, not just for your own growth as a person, but if you're able to represent uh, and advocate for vulnerable communities, you are compounding 
your own lived experience and it ripples for potential generations. You know, I think about that when um, we pass bills like a conversion therapy ban or a non-discrimination ordinance that, you know, God forbid we ever need to levy that or use these pieces of legislation, but they're there. And they send a signal to the rest of the country and the rest of um, our community members that this is who we are, whether you agree with us or not. And so you do have a choice as an LGBTQ person. You can ignore it. um, And that's valid too. Like I know a lot of of my queer friends are like, I want nothing to do with politics. Thank you, Rosemary, for handling it. (laughs) But don't invite me. (laughs) Don't don't, don't, don't invite me at the table. I don't want to sit at the table. And that's okay too. Um, you can ignore it. You can stand up and speak out and and, and organize, or you, you're absolutely right. You can run for office and you can win, which is the most important thing in the world. I think the Victory Fund mentioned that, you know, while we're making incredible strides and 2022 found that more LGBTQ people ran in one office than any time in American history, we will not reach parity. We will not reach equality or not even equality. I think representation in mm-hmm. politics um, until we elect 35,000 more LGBTQ. Wow. Folks. It is an enormous number there. I saw this incredible graph that compared what people think is happening versus what is really happening. And one of the graphs, yep. how many LGBTQ people are serving in office? The people surveyed said tens of thousands. It must be so many. And the number was like just a handful, just a couple, Mm -hmm. you know, a couple thousand. And to reach full uh, representation, we need many more. So if anybody is listening to this podcast or if anybody is on this podcast and wants to run for office, give me a call, reach out to me because I'd love to, I'd love to help. I'd love to have that conversation. We thank you so much for another amazing conversation. And we're going to be beating down your door in another year or so. (laughs) I I suspect that we'll, we'll be in contact. We won't let so much time pass by. Where do you see Rosemary in five years, 10 years and 20 years? Five years, I will hopefully have won an election, Um, uh, whether uh, a re-election or an election for a new office. We're having some conversation right now, which is very exciting. 10 years, um, it'll be 2032. I hope to still be serving, uh, whether that is as an elected official or not. I I have no idea, but I I do love this work so much. I hope by that that time I'll have um, uh, crossed a couple bucket uh, items off my list. Meeting Taylor Swift is one of them. So I'm still waiting (laughs) for the next five years, but 10 years is, I'm patient. So we'll see about that. And then in 20 years, I I believe Melody mentioned that growing up as an LGBTQ person, particularly in the era that we grew up, you didn't feel like you could live a life of honor and success with a partner and a home and a job that you enjoy. It is something that many other communities take for granted. That's just yeah. something that happens in your life. But for queer folks, that is that is not just something that happens. Many of us are lucky that we've been able to live lives of joy um, and happiness, but that was not guaranteed to us. So I hope that in 20 years, I'll continue to be building a life that I love with people that I love and being able to fight on the right side of history. Abbas, thank you so much. Thank you, Rosemary. Uh, we can't thank you enough. The the heart and the ideology and just the, the goodness that you bring, that positive perspective I love for everyone out there, whether LGBTQ+, ally, straight, anything you are, 
Just think of those two words that Rosemary mentioned, grace and curiosity. If we lead our lives and if we view others and interact with others with a little bit of grace and a lot of curiosity, we would make such a beautiful country, such a beautiful community, and eventually, hopefully, such a beautiful world. You've been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind Pride International, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. Please check us out at Blind lgbtpride.org Someday we'll find it The rainbow connection The lovers The lovers The dreamers The dreamers